Hello and welcome to Human Together, where each week we have conversations on the communal life. This is a podcast for people who agree it is not good to be alone, but secretly wonder whether it might be easier. If that is you, welcome. You're in good company. I'm your host, Sarah E. Westfall, and in this episode, I am joined by Lori Ferguson Wilbert. Lori is an award-winning writer, thinker, learner, and author of the books, The Understory, A Curious Faith, and Handle with Care. She has written for She Reads Truth, Christianity Today, and more, as well as over on her own site, lauriwilbert.com. She has a master's in spiritual formation and leadership and loves to think and write about the intersection of human formation and the gritty stuff of earth. She lives with her husband, Nate, and their pups, Harper and Rilke, in upstate New York. I invited Lori to join me to talk specifically about navigating our differences without losing sight of each other's personhood, something that's become increasingly hard for many of us. In addition to this conversation that I had with Lori, we actually have an extended version where I ask Lori to go a little bit more in depth about postures and practices that have helped her not become siloed in her listening while also respecting her own human limitations. Um, It was really good conversation. I think we went on for another 10 minutes or so. So if you want to catch the rest of our chat, I invite you to become a paid subscriber to Human Together over on Substack. Not only will you be able to listen to extended versions of each episode and support the podcast, helping us keep it ad-free, but you'll also get access to regular essay series and our monthly book club. You can find uh, details for all those things, including opportunities for complimentary subscriptions at sarahewestfall.substack.com. So let's dive in. Here's my conversation with Lori. Lori, I'm so happy to sit with you for a bit and be able to talk about being human together because (laughs) goodness gracious, it is not always easy, but it is also a joy. And I just so appreciate you. So welcome. Thank you, friend. I love chatting with you. So I know that this will be a good conversation. I know. I feel like we probably should have pushed record on some of our intro chat because it was already so rich and great, but that's okay. Our paths have crossed in in numerous different ways, but I happened upon you because you have been a writer on the internet for a really long time and in other places too. You Mm -hmm. have two going on three Mm -hmm. very soon books out in the world. And I so appreciate the posture and the attitude so often that you embody um, through your words. But because this is a podcast on being human together, I would love to just hear how engaging in public discourse in this way of putting yourself out there, your stories, your thoughts, the ways that you're processing. What have you learned in that process about being human? Mm, I feel like that's such a big question. What have I learned about being human? I think one of the biggest things that I've learned about being human, and this is not from me, this is straight from Andy Crouch. And I talk about this all the time. So people who know who I am are probably like, oh my gosh, will she just quit talking about that? But his four quadrants where he talks about in order for humans to flourish, we need to have both authority and vulnerability. Like we need to have those things ourselves. We need to have authority in places in our lives. And we also have to be vulnerable, but also leaders. We have to see them being both authoritative and vulnerable in order for us to flourish. Um, And anyone can Google 
his four quadrants. It's from his book, Strong and Weak. But I think that's probably the biggest thing that I've learned in the past. I would say since I read that book in like, I don't know, 2015 or something, I'm talking into an echo chamber if I'm not carrying both of those qualities with me into my work. Uh, some people are just all authority and maybe that works for a how-to piece of writing. And some people are all vulnerability and it's, you know, it's, it's story after story. And sometimes those are helpful, but I think for me, it's really important for me to, to embody both of those things in my work, to own what I believe and also to be willing to hold that belief with an open hand in some ways and say, I'm still in process. I'm still learning. I'm still changing and growing. Yeah. You know, that's a tension that as a writer, but also as a person, mm -hmm. um, I think that I struggle with a lot because it feels sometimes like learning to hold different aspects of myself at the same time. And I'm always fighting this battle of like how they hold hands. What is the the meeting in the middle place? And it, it, I feel like that's always my biggest struggle with my writing, especially, but I think just life in general. Yeah. It's been helpful for me to have kind of a picture of what does it mean to hold things in tension? I think of it as being like, I hold this one thing in tension on this side and this one thing in tension on this side. I hold them tight in order to have tension. You got to hold them tight. But somehow there's this like soft middle, you know? And so where those two things meet has to be soft. And cultivating that soft middle is really important for me. And some people might say that's, you know, wishy-washy or whatever. But in order for me to to hold difficult things in tension, I have to have a soft middle. Yeah. How many years have you been been writing, like, publicly? Since 2001. Okay. So a hot yeah. second or two. Yeah. <laughs> I, I can imagine, just because this is what happens as people, that you are not the same person you were then. Oh my gosh. I have been 27 different people since then. So how has it been for you to continue in your becoming and your growing and your stretching, but people who are also like, um, you said this one thing this one time, yeah. how do you hold that? Uh, our, our dear friend, Seth Haynes once told me to let people see the process. And I think that has been one of the best pieces of advice I've ever gotten from a fellow writer. It's really easy to just sort of have all the answers to something or or even just like not have all the answers to anything and just kind of be sort of loosey-goosey about everything. And I think it's really important for me to say like, hey, I'm a person in progress. I'm a person who is movable, shapeable, being shaped shaping others. And I recognize the, both like the power of that and also the vulnerability of that. And I think I've just embraced that. And I've just said, Hey, I'm going to change my mind. You're going to be disappointed in me. When I change my mind, I'm going to be disappointed in me when I change my mind. And yet changing our minds is like, that is actually the definition of repentance is to change our minds. And so I think of it as sort of like, failing forward. I think of it as like repenting forward. I'm that veil is getting torn. My glasses are getting a little less dim. Some people might see it differently. They might say, oh, you're looking more cloudy or you're looking more whatever. And that's okay. I know that I'm as best as I can with the information I have. I'm, I'm looking to Jesus as the author 
and I'm just saying, I'm like, help me fail forward, help me stumble forward into your goodness and, and really like be okay with however people want to view me. And that's, gosh, that is hard. That's really, really hard. Which kind of leads me to my next question is for you. I know that you probably can't answer this for, for anyone who puts words online, but how do you make space for those people who disagree with you and still be able to see their humanity and see that they too are no less loved by God? Mm -hmm. What are some things that are important for you to continue to hold that? I think it's a, a really important thing for me to remember is that I can make space for people, but they have to choose whether they want to enter that space. And so I think I used to think, well, if I'm making spaces for people who disagree with me, but if they're not here, then I'm doing something wrong. And I think more and more, I'm just like, no, I can make space. I can talk about like their humanity and my humanity and their goodness and my goodness and our differences. And if they choose not to like come into that space, if they want to stay in spaces where they're either they see the person that they're with as their enemy, they can't see their humanity and kindness, or they just want to be with people who see things exactly like them. I'm not in control of that. I can't, I can't do anything about that. I think for how I do that, I really, really love, again, people who have listened to me and followed me for a while know that I love this quote so much, but it's from Norman Wiersba. I heard him speak about it at a, at a retreat one time. He said that we, we practice hospitality by making room for the other, by inviting the other in, by cultivating the life of the other and then liberating the other into their, into their own life. And I, I really just love that picture of saying like, I'm going to make space for you. I'm going to say you're welcome here. But ultimately my job is not to cultivate you into an image of me. It's to cultivate you into an image of God and the person that God wants you to be. So you don't have to be like me. And that takes a, lo a lot of pressure off my shoulders as a writer and I hope it takes a lot of pressure off people who read me. And I hear about it when people are like, ah, I don't like you or don't like my work or whatever, or disagree. That's fine. They're, they're free to disagree. And I bless them and send them peace. And sometimes, depending, sometimes bless and block yeah. um, if it's, you know, turning pretty sour. Right. Because it is loving sometimes to put up clear boundaries if yeah. we know that the lack of those boundaries is only going to taint our <laughs> our vision our our ability to love that person well and that's oh. and their ability to love us well I think yeah. too like I'm like man if I if if you having access to this part of me makes you like want to hurt me all the time that's not good for your soul either <laughs> so go in peace and be blessed. You're loved. You're loved by God. Mm. And you don't need to have this kind of access to me. Yeah. You know, I'm thinking like so much of this, we're, think, we're talking about it in context of a lot of people we know, maybe loosely online or strangers, complete strangers online, or, you know, through the books or, or other places, people that we kind of know on the periphery of our lives. And without, you know, you sharing more than what you want to, what what does this look like, though, for you 
in your face to face, like flesh and and bone life, maybe sometimes people that we can't necessarily block. Bless or, and block. <laughs> bless and block. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think I can honestly say this has been one of the hardest, and I don't want to get into politics, but this has been probably the hardest work of my life over the past four to eight years because I, like many people, had to face some things that I was complicit in and beliefs that I was complicit in and in ways I didn't reflect Jesus and and still don't reflect Jesus. And that has meant the breakdown of more relationships than I could have imagined, you know, a decade ago. Not because it's definitely um, necessarily, you know, there were big blow up fights. Sometimes it's just you drift apart with difference of, of beliefs and things like that. So, but I, I do, I think in the relationships where I have worked really, really hard. And when I say really hard, I mean, we have put in copious amounts of work with people with whom I disagree. And I'm thinking of my dearest friend in the world. We disagree politically. We disagree theologically. We disagree medically. We disagree agree on so many things. And yet we've been friends for three quarters of our lives. And with her, at the end of the day, I love her. I don't love her ideas. And I don't need her to love my ideas because I know she loves me. And she wants to see me formed to the likeness of Jesus. And I want to see her formed to the likeness of Jesus. And so instead of vo avoiding those topics, we talk about them with curiosity. And that is really important to both of us. How did you come to see things this way? What about that view appeals to you? Um, have you considered this? If you haven't considered this, why not? Like what's what holds you back? And then I think when you get into those questions, like I think about, have you considered this? Why not? What holds you back? You're getting into sort of like the common human questions, you know, the universal fears, the universal hopes and dreams and delights. And it's so easy to connect over those things. Like if I hear someone who is anti something that I'm for and I can't, I'm like, what, how can you even think that way? That's not even loving. But then I get underneath the things and I realize, oh, actually it is loving. It's just loving something differently than I love it or loving a different way than I would love, but it's still loving. It's still like undergirded by love. And that's that we only get to those questions, like those realizations by asking questions and really, really listening to the answer, not jumping to share our opinion or one-upping with our story or, but have you read this piece of, you know, evidence or whatever, but to just say like, man, I'm, I'm curious about how you got there. And I want to, I want to really truly understand how you got there. And sometimes Sarah, we do that. And it leads us to like, actually, this isn't like, this isn't a compatible relationship. But I think when we do it in good faith and we do it with true love in our heart, 99% of the time, it leads to a deeper relationship. And I say that, and I want to make sure that I like stress this. It's a lot of work. And I don't think we can give that amount of time and energy and curiosity to every relationship in our lives. And so for me, it was important to identify the most important relationships in my life with whom there was 
significant disagreement and then just put in a heck of a lot of work into those relationships. And it's born nothing but good fruit. I'm nodding along vigorously, which I know that other people cannot see. (laughs) But one of the things you said that I continue to learn because it doesn't always come instinctually to me is when myself and another person are are giving a difference of opinion. If we can't go beneath those opinion, like what is the story that led you there? Yeah. We always stay at that like surface level opinions, thoughts, and ideas. And it's so easy for me to then lose sight of their personhood and begin to say and to think then in terms of right and wrong, us versus them. And that's a really dangerous for me. (laughs) Yeah. And probably for a lot of people, a dangerous place to be in relationally. Yeah. And for our soul and spiritually, I think. It's it's damaging for our whole world. The book that releases in May, it's called The Understory. And I'm trying to tell the story beneath the story. And the most important, it's about the forest, but it's also about relationships and grief and resilience and rootedness and all those things. But the most important things in the forest for the regenerative of the forest are like the things that we would call dead or dying things. So like a tree that has fallen and is laying on the forest floor, they're called nurse logs. And some scientists say that they are the most important part of the forest. These, these nurse logs, these, these, what we would see as dead and dying. And I think if we don't consider that, if we only consider sort of the, the leaves and the branches and the trees, the canopy as like the important part of the forest, we miss the story beneath the story. So that's just a sidetrack. But this goes back to like, if we don't look at the story beneath the story, we miss the really important things. And sometimes they're dead things and decaying things and rotting things. And sometimes they're like beautiful things that we would miss if we didn't decide to go underneath. And like you said, this isn't something we can do with everyone. And no. We can't be everybody's person (laughs) and they can't be that for us either. And so one thing that I continue to have to practice personally is this, whether it's quarterly or yearly, or just when I sense that things are off, asking God, like, who, who are the people in my inner circles? Is it the same? Is it changing? Yeah. Because I think that as time goes on, it does change. It does shift. Yes. And for, for numerous reasons. Yes. And so it's important for us to to develop those practices of of knowing who it is who are in our circles, you know, and not like demonizing or shaming ourselves for not being a part of a circle that blessed us at one time or that we blessed at one time. People change and they're allowed to change. That is sanctification. That is the work of being a Christian in the world is changing and shifting and becoming more like Jesus. Yeah. And I also have realized so often when I'm having a conversation with a friend or a family member and I just start like (laughs) that my insides start heating up Yeah, yeah. just like find myself like clenching my jaw, Mm -hmm. having to step away from those things. And before I engage in any other like deeper conversation with them of being Mm -hmm. like, what are the things that are getting stirred up in me? Yeah. What is this fire and why? Because I think that it's 
also very revealing about both the things we care about, but also maybe some of the ugliness that is lurking. And I think that's one of the reasons we need people in our lives who ask us questions, because oftentimes we we don't even go deep. We can't like stick with a, a story long enough in our own souls about ourselves. And it really helps to have people in our lives who will say, how did you, what are you caring about right now? And how did you get there? And it's just as important for me to be asked questions as it is for me to to ask people questions. Are these the kind of relationships that are like, like a counselor or a spiritual director, or are these like friend type people in your life? Or maybe it changes in the season. I think it changes in the season. I'm thinking of equal relationships, so friendships mostly. Of course, those those questions exist in in counseling or spiritual direction. But no, I'm, I'm thinking of specifically how do we grow? I grow by being vulnerable with my friends and allowing them to ask me questions that uncover things that I'm uncomfortable uncovering or uncomfortable seeing. Yeah. And those are the same friends that I'm committed to doing the work with as well. I think a lot about the communal life. And I start saying communal more because I feel like community, that word yeah. gets thrown around a lot and it means okay. a lot of different yeah. things to different people. So when I think about a communal life, communal is something that is shared, <laughs> that mm -hmm. there is a, an overlap in some way that leads to a deeper knowing and a deeper way of being known by God, but also by other people. In what ways has having people in your life, like your friend, who you do disagree with, what part has, what, how has that helped form you? Mm. Not just inform, but form. So I'm an Enneagram nine and oftentimes our inclination or feeling toward conflict of any kind and conflict is not necessarily a fight. It's just like, ah, that's uncomfortable. I don't want to do that. Um, our inclination toward that is to just like turn away and ignore but growth only happens when we turn toward and engage. Um, and so I say this as an Enneagram 9 who has had to work extremely hard to turn toward and engage people and things I don't want to engage. Because real quick, for people who aren't familiar with the Enneagram, yeah. Enneagram 9 is a peacemaker. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. Uh, more often than not, a peacekeeper. Okay, peacekeeper. Or a, pe or a peace faker. Mm. Um, but growth happens when we enter in and we make peace where we, um, that's, that's our growth edge. And so, yeah, so I'll say this, I think the more that I have in, like decisively entered into those, I'm going to call them conflicts because that's the good, that's a good language for me to use. The more that I've engaged in those conflicts. And again, by conflict, I don't mean argument or blow up fight. That was the thing I had to learn. It's just a place where there's tension, friction, a place where there's friction. The more that I enter into those things, the more the trappings of the Christian life, meaning cultural Christianity, politics as Christianity, the belief that we like build our life around the church and all of our time and energy and finances and ministry goes toward the church. Uh, the more that has just fallen away and the more I'm like, I build my life around Jesus and Jesus has just become a lot more clear to me as I've, as I've decided to enter into that friction, because I see that most of us, 
even if we disagree on how things should be done, most of us are really trying to do the right thing and we're trying to honor Jesus. And I've, I've begun to think of it as like, we're, we're all looking at the same problem, but we're coming at it from different sides. And sometimes we lose sight of the problem and we just see that person coming at, at us from the other side as an enemy when really they're coming at the same problem. They're just doing it differently from another side. And so that's just helped me to, to, to start to see people not as my enemy, but as my co-laborer, even if they're doing things differently and Jesus as the center of it all. So, yeah, I think that's, that is a big way that that has formed me. It's also formed me in the sense that I am less rigid about many of the things that I used to be more rigid about because I see my actual neighbor who lives in the house actually next door to me who actually hates Jesus and has no room for the church or Christians or gospel, any of that language in their life, but who is a lovely neighbor who I love and love spending time with and love, you know, sitting around a fire with them or have no problem asking them to let our dog out or them asking us to eat the spinach from their garden when they're away. Like I see this person as my true neighbor and my image bearing neighbor. And I don't see them as my enemy. I see them as God's friend who's far away. Mm. And that's a big shift for me. I think before I would have seen that person, people like that as an enemy to my shame. And I don't, I don't see that anymore. And that goes for, you know, we live in a pretty post-Christian community and I mean, you can draw your own conclusions about what that looks like, but not a lot of Christians here. And I just don't see these people as my enemy anymore as, or even as a project, something to be won over. I see them as, as image bearers who, who need to be loved. Yeah. And that's much easier said than done. Yeah. Which I think that leads me to, to my next question. I think I want to kind of, this will be a good one to end on mm-hmm. what I hear kind of as a thread throughout most of our conversation, and I don't think we actually have said the word, is humility. Mm. A thread of and posture of not thinking that I am better than someone else, but also not losing sight of my own worth and my own belovedness. Yeah. So are there ways that you personally Mm. have found helpful in cultivating humility in your own life? That question makes me so uncomfortable. (laughs) I can't think of anything, but I will say the ways that I've cultivated my belovedness, which if there is any humility in me, it's rooted in that. I hope, I think the ways that I've come to see my belovedness is by letting go of my love for other people's approval and other people's applause and other people's affirmation and inclusion, like pretty much anything that anyone else can give me, I am learning to count it as loss. And the more that I'm, I'm able to do that, the more I feel beloved by God. It's, it's a very strange thing. It doesn't make sense because I think that we, I have so quickly surrounded myself with people who approve of me in the past or who delight in me. And that's not wrong to want those things, but I've run toward those things and I've been so hurt when those things 
don't turn out like what I want or when the applause isn't there or the affirmation dries up or whatever. And it's told me a narrative that I wasn't loved. And the less I seek that, the more I'm like, wow, I am, I am actually really loved by God. Like he really loves me and he really wants me to find joy and peace and hope and humility and long sufferingness. Like God is so interested in those things and he's interested in loving me toward them, not whipping me toward them. So I hope that answers that question. It does because I hear less of a practice and more presence. I hear being with God, being with Jesus and knowing more of who he is and how he sees you in all yeah. of your humanity. Humility in its in its root word is like hummus of hummus, the earth. Yeah. It like keeps keeps you grounded yeah. in that earth. So yeah. okay. I know you have a book coming out. So I want you to really quick tell people what it is and where they can connect with you so mm-hmm. that they have a place to go from here to kind of continue these conversations. Thanks, friend. I mean, I said the name of the book a little bit ago, but The Understory, An Invitation to a Rooted and Resilient Life. I think that's the subtitle. Um, (laughs) It changes a lot in the process. And so it is hard sometimes to be like, what is the act? Where did we land? Yeah. Yeah. And I kind of walk through a lot of what we've talked about today. What does it mean to live an earthy life, to to be made of clay and bone and spoil alert? stardust? What does it mean to be created from the things of the earth? But also what does it mean to live a regenerative life? And especially when everything around you is dying, when everything you've like sort of planted your feet in or your beliefs in appears to be dying, what do you do with that? So it's called The Understory. It comes out in May and You can find me chattering on about the understory and other things on lauriewilbert.com. My name is spelled with an E-L-O-R-E, wilbert.com. I love how you always have to spell it, don't you? I always have to spell it and say it, yeah. (laughs) Well, thank you, Lori, with an E, for spending some time with us today. And I'm so grateful for you. Thanks, friend. Same. Thanks for joining us for this episode. Human Together is hosted by me, Sarah E. Westfall, and is produced and edited by Ben Westfall. The theme music is Sit With Me, written and performed by Sarah Scarborough. If you resonated with today's chat, I do hope that you'll share the show with a friend and come back next week for another conversation on the communal life.